I am really happy to be here this morning. I think uh, you might recognize some of the people up there on, uh, on our slide this morning. Uh, but I'm really excited to be here and to share God's word with you guys. Um, it's been a pretty hectic morning already around here. And uh, we're uh, grateful for grace that you guys show to us as we try to uh, serve the Lord and serve you as well. Um, but I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about good friends this morning. Um, in today's culture, you can't even say the word friends without somebody thinking of the hit TV show that was on NBC from uh, the mid-90s to the mid-2000s. Uh, it was incredibly popular during its initial run. 52.5 million people watched the finale. Um, that's the fifth most watched fin TV finale ever. It was nominated for 62 Emmy Awards. Uh, it was super popular at the time, but the thing that's been pretty interesting is to watch how it's grown in popularity since then. 15 years after the show ended, Warner Brothers, which owns the rights to the show, still makes a billion dollars a year off of syndication rights. A billion dollars. It's incredible. Um, Netflix said last year that its users watched 54.3 million hours of Friends. The show hasn't been around for 15 years and it's still growing and people are still watching. It's incredible. And there isn't much special to the concept of this show, right? That nobody has any superpowers. Nobody has to save the world within 24 hours. Uh, it's not a show about a royal family from a faraway land. Um, it's just a group of friends and how they live their life together. And there are quite a few shows that are popular like that. You look at, um, you know, Cheers or The Office or Seinfeld or Big Bang Theory. These are really popular shows. And really, all it is is a group of people living their lives together. This really interests people. This is very entertaining. Um, people are seeking it out. And they're fascinated by this idea of people living their lives together with one another, sharing their lives. Last week, Pastor Kyle spoke about our vision. And we shared the, uh, the statement that, that we're working with is um, at Refuge Church, we desire that our church and neighbors would know Jesus and find real life as we joyfully model grace and serve each other, sharing our lives and faith together. See, our vision for Refuge Church is to help people know Jesus. Part of the way that that will happen is by sharing our lives together. If Jesus is the biggest part of your life, then he's going to be in your relationships with one another. It's just going to come out. We're sharing our lives, and we're sharing Jesus. The end of the vision statement says, sharing our lives and faith together. That's what friendship is. Uh, at church, we often use you know, terms like uh, community or um, the body of Christ or church family. And really, all those things mean are, are friends. We're friendship. We're, we're uh, living together. And they all have uh, this duty, uh, this feel of duty and a bigger purpose working towards a goal, and that goal is, is helping people to know Jesus. But that's not simply a reference to sharing the gospel with unsaved people, with people that don't come to church, that maybe have never met Jesus. That's a huge part of it, and that's what Pastor Kyle talked about last week, sharing Jesus with those that don't know him. But helping people to know Jesus not only involves introducing him to people, but helping people that already know him know him better deepening their knowledge of Jesus. Everybody can get to know Jesus better. And our vision is that 
that those that don't know him at all will come to know him. And those that already know him will know him better. And part of the way that we'll do that is by sharing our lives together. Um, another way that you can say it is by being good friends. And this morning, that's what I want to look at. How can we be good friends to one another? Um, this question surfaced in my life recently because of a very specific situation. Two of my uh, good friends recently shared with me that they were diagnosed with cancer um, separately within a few weeks of each other. And um, that was obviously very difficult to hear. And, and I found myself Googling how to be a good friend to someone with cancer. Right? What do we do now? When, whenever we have a question, we go to Google. That's, right, that's kind of the, uh, the default. But I, I'm wondering, what, what do I not know? How can I, how can I go and be a friend to them in this time? And there were some really good responses. You know, things like uh, offer to help with daily tasks. Take your cues from them. Um, remember that everyone's illness is different. Uh, and as I reflected on this and I thought about it, I thought about, that's th I thought about what God wants for us. And that's really what he wants for us. He wants us to be good friends to one another. He wants us to care and to go out of our way to find out how to be a good friend. Um, my mom wasn't the first person to say this, but she was the first one to say it to me. She said, if you want to have good friends, you have to be a good friend, right? So if we're looking to have good friends, we have to be willing to be good friends ourselves. Um, so in light of the vision that I, be I believe God has for Refuge Church, one that includes living our lives together and not just spending Sundays together, I decided to see what the Bible has to say about friendship. Spoiler alert, it's a lot. It talks about friendship quite a bit. I am not going to tell you everything that it says about friendship. This morning, instead, we're just going to look at three friendships from the Bible and try to take something from each of them. We'll see how Job's friends were available to him. We'll see how Moses and Aaron and their friendship complemented one another. And we'll see how Jonathan and David's friendship was one of self-sacrificing love. So first, let's look at Job's friends. And we'll talk about how good friends are available. Uh, the beginning of book of, at the book of Job, Job receives a message that his oxen and donkeys were all taken and his servants caring for them were killed. That's a pretty tough message to hear. He has a lot of his, a lot of his belongings have been taken from him. The people that worked for him were killed. In the middle of receiving this message, another messenger comes along and tells him, also, your there was a fire that consumed your sheep and all the people caring for your sheep. This is terrible. You're getting one message of terrible news and somebody else is coming in at the same time to give you another one. At the same time, another messenger comes in and says, all the camels that you had, there was a raid on them. They were killed and your uh, servants caring for your camels were killed. Now, this is just getting ridiculous, right? I mean... Message at, messenger after messenger are coming in. Finally, while he's hearing that news, another messenger comes in and tells him that all his kids were at his oldest son's house eating dinner, and the building collapsed, and they're all gone. Now, you, maybe you've heard the story of Job before, so maybe this is all old news to you. But if you stop and think for a minute, I mean, that's ridiculous. Four messengers in a row, while one is giving 
the bad news. They're con- coming in the room at the same time. He's getting all of this at once. Sometime after that, Job was afflicted with sores from his head to his toe. Sores all over his body after he had lost pretty much everything that he had. I was thinking about it, and I, I feel like we can say the saying, it could always be worse because of Job, right? <laughs> like, Job had it worse, right? Whatever we have, it's like, oh, yeah, it could always be worse because Job. Um, and it's at this point in the story, after Job has received all this bad news, after he's covered head to toe in sores, that his friends arrive. Now, when you look, when you look in the Bible for ideas about friendship when you're researching. Usually, Job's friends come up in the what not to do category, right? Right? That's, the, that's what we often think about. Job's friends, nope, they were bad friends, you know, whatever. Um, but I think there's an important lesson that we can learn from them. And we can see it in Job 2, uh, verses 11 to 13. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came, each from his own place. Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. You're welcome for not making me read you, making you read that, Missy. <laughs> um, they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. See, Job's friends are often criticized because later on in the book, they give him some pretty bad advice. They don't, uh, they don't really follow the Lord, and they, don't, uh, they, they just work off their own wisdom, which in this instance wasn't great. Um, but I think that we can look at them and see something very important. They were available to Job. Job's friends were there for him when he was hurting. He wasn't much fun to be around. The next chapter, Job talks about how he, he finally starts to speak, and, and so they converse, and he says things like, perish the day I was born. Why did I not die at birth? This wasn't a good time. They weren't having, a, having fun. But they came, and they were there with him. They sat with him. They mourned. In fact, they adopted a, a pretty drastic form of mourning at the time. Uh, usually this was reserved for death or total disaster. They tore their robes of nobility. They threw dust in the air and sat in silence before Job for seven days. Seven days until he spoke. At that time, they believed that it was disrespectful to speak before the mourner. They weren't fair-weather friends. They were hurting and worried about Job. They came to him. They could have gone the easy route. They could have gone their own way, ignored Job. They could have said, we're praying for you. Hope you're okay. But they were there. They came out of their way and spent seven days sitting with him. Can anybody, anybody here think, raise your hand, if you think you could spend seven days not speaking? Maybe, maybe. No, not so much. Okay. Um, Seven days not speaking and sitting with your friends on the ground. Pretty impressive that they came and they mourned with him. They were available to their friend who was in need. They didn't give him the best advice. 
but they were there for him, and they were there to comfort him. Silence was a powerful tool. When they started speaking, things went poorly. <laughs> um, but when they were there and they were quiet, he knew that they were there for them. He knew that they cared. Um, if you've ever been to a wake, I went to a, a wake last week, and um, I spent the whole time waiting in line before I got to the receiving line trying to come up with something to say, trying to, to figure out something that I could say that would help these people that were hurting. And, of course, it's, there's nothing you can say, right? I've been on the other side. I've been in the receiving line. I don't remember what anyone says, but I remember that they were there. I remember that they came. They cared. Warren Wearsby says, uh, the best way to help people who are hurting is just to be with them. Say little or nothing and letting them know you care. Don't try to explain everything. Explanations never heal broken hearts. Just be there for your friend. Maybe you're not. Maybe sometimes you don't make yourself available because you think, I don't know what to say. I, I don't know what I could say. That's okay. Just be there. Just be with them. Be available. Bill Belichick, the New England Patriots coach, says the most important ability is availability. You can be the most talented player on the team, but if you're hurt all the time and you don't get on the field, you're not doing anything to help them win. Job's friends didn't wait to hear from Job. They went to him. They sought him out. Job didn't say, I need some help. Can you come and help me? They said, he's hurting. I'm going to see him. They said, I'm going to be there for him. Availability and a good friendship means more than just being willing to do something, but making yourself known. So many people from Refuge Church were there for uh, my brother Jim last year. Jim had a pretty serious heart condition, ended up um, in surgery, was in the hospital for a few months, and there were so many people that came and helped him. People that give, gave him rides to appointments, people that came and visited. Uh, others prayed relentlessly. Uh, they were there, there. They were available to him. And uh, at the same time, it, you know, I wasn't going through nearly what he was going through. But um, I had a friend who was there for me, my friend John. Um, and when Jim was uh, in surgery, John came to the hospital and sat with us for hours. And I didn't say, John, can you come that day and be there with me? He just came. He said, you're going to need me. I'm going to be there. Um, if you know John... Uh, he spent most of the time cracking jokes, and we were in the middle of the uh, cardiac ICU thinking we were going to get thrown out because we're all laughing hysterically while people are in very difficult situations around us. Um, we thought we might get kicked out, but they left us, they left us alone. <laughs> Job's friends were there for him when he was hurting. They said some wrong and stupid things. They didn't have all the right answers, but they were available to him. Our world has so many options to communicate today. It's so much easier to be there for people now. Job's friends, they had to, who knows what their journey was like to get to him. But they did it, and they stayed seven days. For us, we can pick up a phone. We can take a ride. We can be there for people. But at the same time, as the methods of communication have grown, we've allowed ourselves to be more distracted. 
we've allowed busyness to prevent us from making time for people who are hurting it, if it doesn't fit in our schedules. It doesn't allow time for people that are hurting or need somebody to talk to. In many instances, instances we don't even know that something's wrong because we haven't been in communication with our friends. I don't know about you guys, but I don't often, when I'm going through something difficult, I don't often reach out to people on my own. I don't often say, hey, I need some help with this. No, I need to be willing to do that. At the same time, I need to be in communication with the people around me, with my friends, with my church, to know that something's wrong. And believe me, as I preach this message, this is what God is speaking to me about right now. So I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to myself, certainly. Um, if we want to have deep relationships with one another and grow in Christ, we need to be available. More likely than not, if you tell someone, call if you need something, they're not going to call. That's been my experience anyway. And sadly, that's why some people say it. We need to be intentional and pursue our friends if we care for them. Communicate and be there for them. Don't just let them know that you are there, but be there. So good friends are available to one another. Also, they complement one another. This is number two. Good friends complement one another. Telling your friend how great they look in their new dress or how awesome their house is, is, is nice, but that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, compliment with an E, right? Uh, God can accomplish amazing things through two people working together. Finding friends that complement who you are and what you can do and being a friend to others in the same way is one of the ways that God uses us to build his kingdom. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10 says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow man. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. There's a great example of this idea of friends complimenting one another uh, in the relationship of Moses and Aaron found in Exodus. Exodus chapter 4, I think we have the verses, um, verse 10 and 13 to 14. It says, But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You see, before this, the story leading up to this is God had appeared to Moses in a burning bush. And he had told him, look, I see what's going on in Egypt. Because Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, was oppressing the Israelites. And Moses was an Israelite. And he said, I know what's going on. God says, I see it. I see what's happening. And I'm going to save my people. I'm going to rescue them. Moses must have been like really excited at this point, right? All right, God is coming. He's going to rescue him. And then he says, and I'm going to use you to do it. And Moses was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know about that. I really like the idea of rescue, but I don't so much want to be the one that's involved in it. And he comes up with excuse after excuse 
for why this wouldn't work. The Israelites will never believe that you really sent me. Pharaoh's not going to listen to me because he didn't want to go. He was afraid. He says, I'm not a good speaker. That was one of his excuses. So God says, okay, I'm going to send Aaron with you. You know Aaron is a good speaker, right? He'll help you. In verse 13, literally, Moses says, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. I'm not going to come down too hard on Moses for that because I've been there before, right? And maybe you have too. Maybe you've been in a situation where, at work where you thought, it can't really be my job to train this person, right? This can't really be up to me. I can't really have to explain to this guy what mansplaining is and why he's doing this incorrectly, why it's offensive. This can't be my job. Please send somebody else to do this. Well, God sent Aaron to be a helper to Moses. In Exodus 7, 1 to 7, God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. Maybe you've heard the song, right? He tells him, you will go. You'll go and tell Pharaoh to let them go. But Pharaoh's not going to listen. I'm going to harden his heart. This isn't going to work. Moses had to be like, you're asking me to do this thing that I hate, I don't want to do, and now you're telling me it's not even going to work? God says, it's all right, I got it. Nine times you're going to go and tell him, let my people go, and it's not going to work. I'm telling you now, I'm going to harden his heart. Remember that the next time you think, why would God do something like this? We don't necessarily know what the bigger plan is. Moses and Aaron listened to God, though. Moses was 80, Aaron was 83, and they listened to him. Over and over again, it says in the passages, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. Ten plagues, ten times, God said, Go and speak to Pharaoh. This was a hard thing to ask, and God provided a friend to Moses through this difficult process to help him in his area of struggle. Moses was willing to ask for help and willing to receive it. We need to be willing to ask for help and willing to receive it and work with one another. He says he was not eloquent. Not, yeah, that's how, that is how I feel today. Not eloquent. Um... It was God's plan for him to fail over and over again. And yet he provided somebody to help with that weakness, that fear that he had. Effective teamwork happens when each member uses his or her special skills. They make up for one another's weaknesses. God uses individual special abilities, which he weaves together for his use. You see, in Romans, the passage that we read earlier, it says that there are many members of the body of Christ, which this is talking about um, all Christians. It says they don't have all the same function, but rather they're gifted in different ways. Kind of like Liam Neeson. We have a particular set of skills, right? God has gifted us in this way, and his plan is for us to work together to be able to accomplish his goals. You see, we can't do it on our own. We need the help of people around us. We need to be willing to ask, and we need to help others in their calling as well. I can't reach the people that you can reach. There are people that you're going to be able to reach for God, share Jesus with him that, that I can't. And the same way, there's going to be people that I can reach that maybe you can't. But when we come together, God uses us in a great way. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. 
for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. This made me think of a story about Jimmy Durante that I read. Uh, he was an old entertainer. Uh, and back after World War II, uh, there was a lot of shows for veterans uh, in the area and uh, where he was. And somebody had asked him to come and perform at one of the shows for the World War II veterans. And he told them his schedule was really packed that day. And if they wouldn't mind, he would come and do like a short five-minute monologue and then just have to get out of there. They said, absolutely, we'd love to have you here. Please, please come. So uh, when Jimmy got on stage, something interesting happened. Uh, he went through the short monologue, and everybody thought it was great, and they were cheering and, and clapping. And he just kept going. He stayed 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, a half an hour. And then finally, he said, he, he signed off. Um, and the, the director who had contacted him came backstage and said, hey, I, I thought you had to leave. Did, did something free up? And he said, uh, no, I, I still had to go, but I can tell you exactly what happened. If you go out and look in the front row, and you'll know why I stayed. In the front row, there were two men, each of whom had lost an arm in World War II. One his right arm and one his left arm. They sat next to each other, and they were clapping together. I mean, how amazing is that? Together they were able to clap and they were cheering loudly. And he said, I can't leave, I have to stay. We might not be missing an arm physically, but emotionally and spiritually, I hate to tell you this, you're not the whole package and neither am I, right? We need each other. Together, God will use us for great things. Together, God will use Refuge Church to help make Jesus known. Good friends are available, and good friends complement one another. But in addition to that, good friends sacrifice for each other. This is the third, uh, the third point. Good friends sacrifice for each other. I asked a few people about friendship in the Bible, just kind of talking in, in preparation for this. And uh, almost everybody that I asked talked about uh, Jonathan and David. That's the first friendship that they thought about when they think about the Bible. Um, it's one of the more famous friendships, and you can see their special relationship is evident from the first time they, they met. David had just finished slaying the giant Goliath. Maybe you've heard that story before. Saul, the king of Israel, sent for him to, to kind of learn who David was. David meets Saul, and immediately after that meeting, well, Jonathan was there, so this is when they met. Uh, and you can see Jonathan, who uh, is the prince at this time, Saul was the king of Israel. Um, you can see immediately the relationship. First Samuel 18, I think we have the verse uh, 1 to 4. It says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. He was knit to the soul of David. This is the first time they meet. That's such an interesting way to say it. They were immediately connected. And later on it says that the, uh, Jonathan makes a covenant that says, The Lord shall be between me and you 
and between my offspring and your offspring forever. They are connected immediately. That's pretty amazing. In 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan risked his life for David. Saul was pressuring Jonathan for uh, information about David, and he wouldn't give it up, and Saul threw a spear at Jonathan, his own son. In 1 Samuel 23, Jonathan meets David to encourage him. He says, you will be king, and I will be next to you. You will be king, and I will be next to you. Think about this for a minute. The prince, the son of the king, is willing to give up the kingdom for David, his friend. You will be king, I will be next to you. He was the heir to the throne, and he sacrificed that for David. Later, David says, your love was, to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Selfless love. Jonathan loved David as he loved his own soul. That phrase is used multiple times. It reminds me of, in the New Testament, Jesus gives the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And he says the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. It's kind of a weird idea to love somebody like you love yourself. But it's the same phrase that's used here with Jonathan and David. It says that Jonathan loved him as his own soul. You know, it was a big sacrifice for him. You think giving up the kingdom, and that is a huge sacrifice. But also think about disappointing your father, letting him down. Not just any dad, but the king, letting him down. Nobody lets him down, right? Nobody disappoints the king. Not only that, but you're befriending his enemy. You're doing this for his enemy. Later in Second Samuel 9, Jonathan eventually loses his life in battle. And David searches out if there's anybody left from his line to try to help him so that David can be there for them. He finds out that Jonathan has a son who is crippled in both feet. And he shows kindness to him. In verse 7 of 2 Samuel 9, it says that he will restore all the land of your grandfather Saul. And you shall eat at my table regularly as one of the king's sons. David took Jonathan's son in as his own. He had him sit at the table with him as one of his sons. This also speaks to the sacrifice that Jonathan made. Not only did he sacrifice in his relationship with his father, not only did he sacrifice the kingdom for himself, for himself, I really am not eloquent today, um, but he also sacrificed for his future generations. His son would have been the next one in line. It was for his whole family he was sacrificing, but he did it because he loved David and because he believed that he was God's chosen king. He sacrificed. What can you sacrifice for your friends? You probably don't have a kingdom to sacrifice. If you do, I'd like to become friends with you. Um, but what can you sacrifice? That's kind of tough. It's a little bit open-ended, and I think it depends on your relationships. You know, one thing, as I was sitting here this morning, I thought, you can sacrifice something for a friend thousands of miles away that you don't even know by taking a shoebox. And you sacrifice of your time, of your money to put that together. But for somebody else, because you care, for a child who will need it. But you see, Jonathan had a heart of sacrifice. It's really impressive what he sacrificed 
But I think something that we can take from him is he was willing to sacrifice. He did sacrifice. And it wasn't just something that was a cultural norm or a societal norm or a familial norm. He went above and beyond. Our verses uh, that Missy read this morning, it said, outdo one another in showing honor. That's so cool. That is so awesome. Imagine just like giving more and more to one another, caring even more. Outdo one another in showing honor, sacrificing. Immediately, Jonathan, when he met David, gave him his clothes and his armor. That's weird, right? Like it's weird for them to be so closely related so quickly. But Jonathan didn't care. He sacrificed. He gave. He didn't think about how it would look. He didn't think about what his family would say or anybody else. He didn't think, I, just, I can't just turn my back on my family, on my father. He did what was right, and he sacrificed. He had an uncommon spirit of sacrifice. We often don't even think of the things that we could do because our mind hasn't been trained to sacrifice. I wouldn't have thought to give up the kingdom to David. I wouldn't have thought, here, take all my stuff. Jonathan did. We need to retrain our minds to remember that we can do crazy things. Crazy things like this story I read about a Hebrew lady who talked about how an, another Christian's faith converted her. See, she was, this is during World War II. She was fleeing the, from the German Gestapo in France. And she knew she was close to being caught and she just wanted to give up. She said, they're, they're going to get me. This is how it's going to happen. She came to the home of a French Huguenot. And a widow lady met her and said it was time to flee to a new place. And the Jewish lady said, it's, it's no use. They're going to catch me. They're so close behind. And this Christian widow who she met said, yes, they will find someone here. But it's time for you to leave. Go with these people to safety. I will take your identification and wait here. The Jewish lady understood the plan. The Gestapo would come and find the Christian widow and think that she was the fleeing Jew. The Hebrew lady said, I asked her why she was doing that. And the widow responded, it's the least I can do. Christ has already done that and more for me. The widow was caught and imprisoned in the Jewish lady's place, allowing time for her to escape. Within six months, the Christian widow was dead in the concentration camp. Later, this Hebrew lady accepted Christ as her Savior. These are the kind of sacrifices that are showed to us as examples. How can we sacrifice? I hope you noticed the pictures in the background at the beginning of some of our uh, friends here at Refuge. I wanted to include that because I think that uh, here at Refuge, we have some really great friendships. Friendships that are based on people's relationship with God. There are people here now who are available to one another, who complement one another to accomplish great things, and who sacrifice for each other. That's part of what our church is already built on. And these relationships with each, other's, with each other and with others who aren't even here yet are what will be a fuel for what God does. So I want to encourage you to continue and not grow weary. 
but there are some of us, myself included, who need a reminder about how we can share our lives together and grow our relationships to help one another know Jesus. And maybe you come in this morning and you thought, you know, I don't really have a friend like this. This friendship that you're talking about. You're in luck. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That friend is Jesus Christ. In John 15.15, it says, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus offers this friendship to you right now. He is available at all times. He compliments better than any other, helping you in every area of weakness that you have. In John 15, 13, it says, Greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Jesus' sacrificial love in dying on the cross is the greatest act of love of all time. If you want that friendship, pray to him. Ask him to forgive you for the bad things that you've done. And ask him to help you change. The greatest friend of your life is waiting for you. Please join me in prayer. Jesus, I thank you for being our friends. For being there for us. For loving us. For complimenting us and helping us in everything, that, every area that we need. Strengthening us and for your sacrifice. I pray, Lord, that we would learn from your friendship and from these other friendships that we learned from this morning in the Bible, that we would be good friends to one another and show you to each other. As we come to our communion right now,